Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today is our 114th show. Today's guest is Bobby Glinick, author of Email Marketing That Doesn't Suck, which I love the title. Uh, Bobby, before we get started about the book, let, let's talk a little bit about your professional background, which is really interesting. So start with that. Yeah, so I'm a lawyer by training. I, I graduated with honors from Harvard Law School in 2002. Uh, and then as we were kind of just chatting about, I, I, I spent... The first, I would say, eight years of my legal career doing or in positions that a lot of lawyers would have been very jealous of. I, I, my first job out of law school, I had a one-year clerkship uh, with a federal court of appeals judge in Arkansas who was long thought as one of the the kind of highest or highest regarded or best thought of liberal judges never to make it to the Supreme Court named uh, Richard Arnold. He was uh, Clinton seriously considered him. He was a finalist for the Supreme Court both times that Clinton had appointments. Um, then I went to work for elite law firms here in Washington, D.C., including one where, as we were talking about, uh, my mentor, the guy who recruited me to the firm was a guy that I just called Neil at the time. Now we have to call him Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch. So I kind of had both sides of the aisle. I had a, a, an original mentor who was a great liberal thinker and, and a mentor who's a, a very conservative thinker. And so I had both of those things. Then I spent three years as a federal prosecutor, which is a very hard to get job where I got to go and, and stand up in court and say, Robert Clink on behalf of the United States of America. I, I, I kind of had that hedge there because I say Robert in court. It's, it's the only place I do it other than when my mom is mad at me. I, I still get called <laughs> Robert, but but I did that. So that was the first eight years of my career. Then in 2010, I, I joined a small entrepreneurial law firm here in Washington, D.C. Uh, we did all kinds of cases, almost all on contingency fee or mixed contingency and, and other types of fees, which meant you know, we, we only made money if we won for our clients. And so it was a very kind of entrepreneurial spirit of we, we have our skin in the game and we were partners with our clients. So I did that for a while and then started my own law firm in 2014 and um, was doing that. The, the problem was I really didn't love being a lawyer. I love the law, discussing law, discussing legal theory. I love that. I mean, all those kinds of academic discussions I could do all day. But I chose a career where I fought with people about some of the dumbest stuff ever. I fought with people about whether they would give me copies of documents in, in a way that I could read it. Literally, there was a case I had to fly down to West Palm Beach twice because they had given me copies in discovery in a, in a big lawsuit where like a bunch of the key documents had kind of moved while they were being copied. So it was, it was blurry and you couldn't actually read it. And I had to go down there twice to argue. And then the judge looked at him and said, just give them good copies. But I mean, this is what my life was for a long time. And, and so I didn't enjoy it. Um, I, I started the transition out of being a practicing lawyer in 2017 and, and kind of fully got out of it in 2019 and, and have been running an online business since 2017, successfully since 2018. 
Yeah, and I thought it's really interesting. We're going to talk about your evolution here. So why did you write this book? <laughs> well, uh, it started not as being a book about email. Originally, it was going to be a book about um, marketing more generally and being what I call a serve-first entrepreneur. In the space that I tend to, to spend most of my time in the online world, people talk about being a serve-first or a heart-centered entrepreneur. And I find that oftentimes they, they don't really grasp all of the nuances of that. And, and I had started building a business way back when using things that I'd learned from my dad. My dad ran a chain of drugstores when I was growing up. And, and I just learned that you treat people right, that your customers are always right, even when they're not. And that you put your customers first, no matter what. And I had learned that ethos and people had been had gravitated towards me because of that in the online world. So I was going to write a book about that. But I decided I wasn't ready to write that yet. And so in the process, I decided to write about my first love in marketing, which is email. And so I wrote a book about email, which is really a book about marketing as much as it's a book about email, um, especially part one, where it talks about big concepts. So that was the idea behind it. And that was the evolution of kind of how it came full circle to start as a book about marketing and become a book about email marketing. Uh, so, you know, I'm always wondering, uh, what does a bad email look like? I mean, we've seen them. And, you know, and I've seen some of the stuff that you wrote throughout the book, mm -hmm. and I always thought emails should be shorter than some of the length that you had. But let's just start with this question. What's, you know, and so we stay away from it. What's a bad email look like? So, I mean, there's a lot of things that you can do that make an email bad. Um, first of all, if it's boring. Um, and again, it's when, when I say this, part of the problem is you have to think through we are all getting inundated with messages constantly in our inbox, in everywhere else. And so if you're boring, if you're forgettable, people are going to tune out. And so that's kind of the first thing. And the problem is a lot of people are writing emails because someone has told them they have to write emails, but they don't really, no one tells them what they're supposed to be about. And so they'll focus on um, you know, content, or they'll they'll focus only on selling, or they'll do something where really it just gets old. And so, the the two ways, and it depends on what kind of business you're running, but the two types of emails that I see that are really bad. One is it's not any individual email, but it's that people only ever try to sell an email. Everything they do is a sale, and sometimes it's literally selling products in every single one, or other times it's even if when they're not selling a product, they're actively trying to sell you into doing something. Their goal is to get you to take an action 100% of the time. And the problem with that is that then makes them seem like what I call an asshole. I mean, you seem like an asshole because you're always asking for something. You're not giving, you're always asking for something from your audience. And so people tend not to like that. The other thing is people will send emails. And, and I used to call the word newsletter, I would say that's a four letter dirty word, because it's a mentality that's wrong, which is people just sum up content that they have elsewhere. And that's not a good approach either. Because if people want to read your content or consume your content, whether it's a podcast, a video show or something else, guess what, they'll go consume it. And simply summarizing it in your email isn't going to do a lot of good, it will generally be boring, and people get no value from it. So they will stop paying attention. So that's kind of the other end of what's wrong with emails generally. Uh, in a, uh, marketing an email, when the person doesn't know anything about you or the product service you're selling, how do you develop that right communication 
that mm -hmm. they'll open that email when they don't know you. I mean, we get tons of those emails every day. And I feel like you just said that everybody's trying to sell me something. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the whole way that they're phrasing it and everything. So how do you go about getting strangers to open up your e emails? Well, first of all, let's be clear. E even if you do this really well, um, most people won't. Most people won't open your emails. Most people won't read your emails. And it depends on how you're building your email list and what the purpose is and how people view it. But in my case, I, I build my list by offering free guides and, and free, you know, free, sign up for this free or get this free by joining my list. Now, there's plenty of people who all they really want is to get that document for free. And, and that's fine. And those people are never going to pay attention. But that's the 80-20 rule in action. And, and we just have to know that from a, a realistic perspective, we're always going to have a lot of people who just come dabble and leave. I don't worry about those people. I focus on the people who are interested, who might be interested. And the way I do that is that instead of, first of all, a lot of people send a very boring first email. Like if they're giving out a freebie and that's how people join their list, their first email is, here's your thing. And, and that's about it. That's all they say. Whereas I use that first email, I have what I call the catch framework, which is a way to write that first email that proves to them that you understand what they're struggling with. You understand what they want, what they need, and, and kind of walks through and says, hey, you joining my list or downloading this freebie or whatever it is, says to me that you're one of the people who's going to be successful and that's going to overcome this problem. And that kind of starts to build some trust. The goal of that email, the first email that, I, that you send and the structure I created for it is all about building some trust with potential people so that they'll stick around to read the next email. And then if they read that next email, hopefully they'll read the third email and then the fourth. And so I actually suggest that people walk new subscribers through, through a pretty long process of emails at the beginning that are often not trying to sell anything, just helping them get value, helping them understand who you are, what you stand for, and how you can help them before you start even sending them your regular weekly emails. And that way, by the time you're selling, you've positioned yourself effectively as, as a friend and trusted confidant for people, and then they're, they're willing to listen. And so that's the way I do it, is I'm not actively trying to sell, for the most part, to people right away. Now, there are some exceptions with my legal template side of my business. Some of that stuff I am, you know, because it, it, it's a product and it's a product-based business. And I want to make sure, hey, I got this thing. Do you need it? Do you want it? And, and then I let them, them buy right then. So that's how I handle the issue. I, I, I take them through a journey before I sell rather than trying to sell right away. You know, it's interesting. In the book, you mentioned a woman who got a 50% open rate. Mm -hmm. but really didn't capitalize much yeah. on it. I and mean, she gave something away and that's all they wanted. Can you tell a little bit about that? Yeah, so this was, so, and again, just so everybody understands, open rates are, have always been kind of a, yeah, not a great metric. And it's gotten even worse. Uh, the iOS 15 update, if anybody here is an Apple user, you you got this and you got to see that, you know, there's email privacy. And so now if, if you use an iPhone, a Mac or an iPad, uh, and use their native mail program, not their mail service, but literally my Gmail, I'm opening on my iPhone on the mail thing. So that will show us open. So there's problems with that anyway. But before that, a good open rate for most people would be 25%. And this woman in a group was talking about how she had 50% open rates. And it was like, people are like, wow, how are you doing that? 
And then what she described is she was a, a programmer, I think for, for a particular type of web company. I don't even think it was the main one, but she would help people who were also programmers. She would help other people who were web developers. And it came out, she explained that she had a piece of code in every single one of her emails that they could cut and paste and put into their library. And my point is, oh, okay, well, people opening that is in no way a sign that they really are ever going to buy anything from you. It's just a sign that they want that piece of code and they're using it as value. Now, I'm not saying that's a horrible thing. It might be that giving that code was valuable, but doing that and focusing on doing that meant she was giving all of this stuff away constantly in hopes of keeping her open rates high rather than thinking through what's the journey to take people on so they'll ultimately buy something from me. And, and thinking through it that way, instead of focusing on metrics, which is what a lot of people do, they just focus on these individual metrics and think that's the way to, to do email right. Did, did uh, your experience as a litigator, because when I'm listening to you talk about this, this sounds like you leading a jury. <laughs> well, so some of it is, but but people would suggest that, yes, I'm a litigator, and so that experience helps, but I probably became a litigator because of the way I think. And so uh, I, I am a big proponent of the Gallup Strengths Finders test or Clifton Strengths. I don't remember what they call it now, but it's this uh, a personality assessment. And if you've never taken it, I think they have 34 different strengths and it ranks them one to 34 for you. And so the cool thing about this personality assessment is that the chances that any other human being on earth has the exact same order. So that one through 34 in the same order is something like one in a billion. So you probably share your personality type with one or two other human beings in the world total, not much higher than that. And so it, it gives you a ton of data. And when you look at it, I naturally make the case for things. I naturally communicate. I naturally am an influencer. And so it did come in. And so, yeah, a lot of what I'm doing comes from that. It's this skill set. I was I was the Texas uh, high school debate champion my senior year in high school too. So I've been making a case for things and being persuasive for a long time. One of the things that's had to shift for me was before when I was a litigator, I didn't talk about my personal life at all. I mean, I was I was very logical, presenting logical arguments. And as I've shifted into this entrepreneurial marketing world, there's a lot more storytelling and personal storytelling happening, which is a very different skill set. And luckily, it's one that I'm, I'm good at there as well. But it's something that I had to build up separate from my experience as, as a lawyer and a litigator. So a question from the audience, what yep. day or days of the week and what time of the day is best to send an email? Depends on your audience. Um, and and what, the most important thing in a lot of ways is to train your audience to expect something consistent from you. And what, what, depending on what email marketing system you use, you'll find that they will often provide data to you. Randomly in my audience for a long time, sending emails on a Saturday afternoon was the highest open rate. Um, and, and that had to do with, I often am talking to people who have a day job who work on their businesses on the weekend. So there was a high likelihood that they would be at their computer on a Saturday afternoon, I guess, when I was sending those emails. But I also don't worry about that too much. I can send emails now any time of the week and people open them. Um, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't fixate on that. I would just set a routine and get used to sending them on those time. Um, and again, depending on where your audience is, that'll be part of it as well. If your audience is uh, 
you know, if your audience is all, for example, in North America, then you could basically say, okay, well, I'm going to send during the daytime hours, uh, probably during the week when folks will be there, um, will be at their computers or potentially in front of their phones. My audience happens to be around the world. So really there is no answer to that question, right? I mean, it, I, if I'm sending it 8 a.m. one place, it's 5 p.m. somewhere else. And so I've just gotten used to it. I tend to send emails on Tuesday mornings and Friday mornings, but sometimes it bleeds into the afternoons before I get an email out and, and my open rates don't seem to matter that much. Interesting. Yeah. Um, what about and another question from the audience? What about B2B audiences? Is there mm -hmm. different difference for that? There, there is, but what I would say, and B2B, your audience would be there during the day. So then you would definitely be sending it kind of during the work week when you suspect people would be at work. Oftentimes early in the morning, I probably wouldn't send on Mondays because people get into the office on Monday and they've got a lot going on. Um, but at the same time, I, I tell people, understand that the things I teach, you probably wouldn't use as much personality as I do in my emails if you're B2B. But understand that ultimately, even in the B2B situation, people want to do business with a person, not with a company. And so building a personal connection still matters and is still important when you're in that B2B context. Uh, question from the audience. What types of personal stories can be marketed in a new product company? So the, the purpose of the story, what I like to say is I tell personal vignettes. So they're Sometimes I will tell epic personal stories, but I try to find little moments from my life that you can use as a mini parable to tell to, to teach a lesson. And so an example of this, and, and it's not an example for my life, but but there's power in stories in teaching lesson. If I say the tortoise and the hare, your mind immediately said, slow and steady wins the race. If I say the three little pigs, people think, oh, you got to prepare now because, you know, preparation is what protects you during the storm. And so the idea is you want to tell little stories from your life that can have those same implications. I tell stories, and again, my stories are, are can be a bit out there, but I tell stories about uh, me going for a walk and seeing people like you know, at 6 a.m. in Washington, D.C., dressed like they're going to the club and being confused, having no idea what was going on, saying something about it to my wife and my wife rolling her eyes and saying they're doing the walk of shame. And I use that, used to use that when I was going to close the cart on a promotion and say, I don't want you doing the walk of shame tomorrow and not having bought this deal. And so, again, it's just that little moment in my life. I've told stories about uh, my getting an email from my daughter's school the first week, her first year in public school in kindergarten. And the subject line was just lice and telling us that they had gotten a confirmed case of lice in her class. And then I told the story of how that led me to spend four hours going to the depths of the internet to figure out how do I make sure that we don't get lice in my house. And the message of that was I could only do that because I had built a business that did not require me to be doing stuff right now to make money right now. And I, it was part of a promotion I was doing. And I used that as that story to teach that little lesson to say, if you need to make that transition, signing up for this product might work. So you can see these are like little nothing stories oftentimes that you can use to come up with a lesson that is relevant to your business, whatever your business happens to be. Another question from the audience, how is Constant Contact, which is what I actually have been using for uh, since the beginning of their existence, 
versus others. So do you have one that you particularly like using and did you test others? So, I mean, I've used various ones. I think I was with Constant Contact way back when I was first creating one for my law firm. I think I used Constant Contact. I currently use one called ConvertKit, um, but they're all pretty much the same. The, the one thing I will caution you on is a lot of these companies, they're selling you on the, the pretty templates that you can use. For the most part, you shouldn't use a template. For the most part, your email should be plain text because think about what happens to you when you're getting, an, when you're receiving emails. When you see a formatted email, your mind automatically, without you even realizing it, recognizes it as a promotional message. Forget what's happening on your inbox side. You as a human being recognize it and say, oh, they're about to promote to me. They're about to sell to me. Whereas the way you want to position it and have people see it more is as you are just a friend sending them an email. And so whatever system you use, for the most part, what you want to do is just use plain text. Uh, if you want to add some pictures, you can add them in the middle. But there have been a lot of studies that show even people who, who say they prefer a stylized, uh, to, to receive a stylized email or to receive images in their email, study after study have shown that uh, when you send that kind of email, you have a lower open rate and a lower click-through rate. So no matter what people think they want, what actually works best is plain text emails. Uh, question from the audience. How long should the initial email journey be, she puts that in quotations, mm -hmm. be, for new subscribers, can you give an example of what that initial sequence would look like for a product-based company? Yeah. So for a product-based company, and again, just to be clear, most of the people that I'm speaking to are not product-based companies. We are service-based companies or course companies or coaches companies. And a product-based company can still do the same thing. But, but the goal of what you're doing is there's a couple of different pieces. First is that first email to, to congratulate them for getting on your list and give them the incentive, whatever it was. That's the first email. Then depending on, on how they joined your list, you're either going to send a brief nurture sequence, which should be kind of helping them take action on something. I, for example, for people who join my list through my legal freebies on the legal side of my business. So, so people understand, I still sell legal templates and I do business coaching. So I have people coming on two sides of my business. People coming in on the legal side go through a sequence, a nurture sequence that's five emails long that covers five big issues that my types of clients or my types of customers, customers need to be thinking about. So copyright, trademark, uh, getting agreements in writing, your website, and privacy issues. So I, I, there's one email per each one of those, and I, I, I'm helping them understand it each the way I do it because I use a lot of self-deprecating humor. I talk about a place, a time where I really mess that up, and then I give the lesson below that. So I do that in a nurture sequence. Then, though, I have a, a welcome sequence, and I believe everyone should have a welcome sequence. And that welcome sequence should cover, for example, and for a product, you would have your product origin story. How did your company come to exist to create this product? Why was it that you decided to do this? And it's not about you, it's about them. I mean, it is about your audience, but it's about you seeing a problem. Maybe you experienced a problem and you were trying to solve one of your own problems, but that's the first piece is an origin story of either the brand or the person. Then you also, hopefully you have core values in your business. And I want people to know what I stand for and what I, what I stand against. 
That way people can decide, do they want to do business with me? Yes or no. And the same thing with you, um, if they're relevant. And this could be like, you know, it, it could be all kinds of different things. If you can think of anyone who's, who's um, fair trade and uses fair trade practices, that would be something they would want to highlight in this welcome sequence because they want people to know because that will help the right people decide to do business with them. And then the last kind of category of things that you would cover is how can you help your customers? So depending on everything you have, like if you're creating content that could be useful to the customers, you want to tell them about that. But then you also want to make sure they understand all of the products you have, or at least the different kinds of products. Because we often think people know how we can help them and oftentimes they can't. Now, if you have a single product, it's pretty easy. You're going to talk about that one product in an email about why it is, you know, how valuable it is, et cetera. But if you have different types of products, you want to make sure they understand the different ways you can help them so that they'll, they'll be able to take advantage of that and potentially buy something from you and buy the right thing from you. I learned that lesson the hard way uh, when I was first uh, launching in my business, the legal template business, I have an, an all-in-one pack. You, you buy once, you get all my legal templates now and forever. And the first time I launched that, I, I did this whole series of emails to my list and people bought it. And then afterwards, I sent emails to people who didn't buy and asked them why they didn't buy. And a lot of the responses were, well, it sounds great, but I didn't need all of them. I only needed some of them. I wish you sold templates individually. I do, but I had not communicated that well enough. And so I realized I needed to communicate that at the beginning so people understood that and would be able to then go make the right decision for them. You know, it's really interesting when you told them, you know, you want to be relatable and you mm -hmm. got to tell your story in the beginning why this was even important to you. Mm -hmm. And that's the one question that they ask in every single shark tank. Mm -hmm. One of the sharks always asks, so why did you start this thing? Yep. And I, when I work with entrepreneurs or even when I'm raising money, I always like to tell the story about why we even got into this because people love stories mm -hmm. and they like to know what got you excited about whatever you're doing. And then they feel that connection with you. So I think that's super solid advice that a lot of people forget uh, doing. Uh, question, in a sales email, how long should an email be or does that depend on the product service you're promoting or selling? So it depends on a lot of different things. Um, and so part of it is there's not one kind of sales email. Um, there's multiple kinds of sales emails. There's multiple things you're going to do when you're selling, when you're in an active sales period. And part of this is that, that different people will react to different kinds of messages and, and not just different kinds of messages. There are detail people and then there are big picture people. There are spontaneous deciders, and then there are fence sitters. And so part of what you're going to do when you're writing, like if you were going to do a big promotion, whether it's a week, two weeks, three weeks, I don't care how long it is, you're going to write a lot of different kinds of emails. Some will be very long because those are going to be the details for the detail-oriented people who want to know every last thing about your product, about your service, about what they can expect from it, and you've got to address all that. Some of them will be quicker and, and shorter. Honestly, one of the emails that converts the best for me in when we do promotional periods is I send an email that I now basically, we invite people, we have a way that people can text me questions. If, they're, if they want to know an answer to, to something that, that's a burning question for them about the product, we invite them, we give them a number, they can text me. That's a very short email. And, and it converts like gangbusters, even though hardly anyone ever texts me. 
just the fact that I'm willing to give them that avenue means that people are willing to do it. But that's, I think it's a, I don't know, it's probably a, a short three or four paragraph um, email. It's one of the shortest I ever send and, and it works well. But that's just for people who want to believe that they will get good service. And so it's, it's speaking to that one thing. So it's all over the map. Please tell us a little bit about, and I like this, Badass Online Marketing University. Yeah. So um, in, in the space where I live, people sell online courses. And there's people are selling all of these different online courses for all of these different individual marketing ideas or concepts or, or types of products, et cetera. And my team and I, at some point, we just looked around and we said, how, if, if we were to hire someone who didn't understand online marketing and this online entrepreneurship world, how in the world would we ever even get them up to speed and train them even about the basics? Because I was like, I just don't even know anything. So it started as that and it, it turned into something slightly different, which is we created this thing, Badass Online Marketing University or BOMU for short, where we have at present, I think there's 12 or 13 courses in there and it's 100% free. We just decided we don't sell information. We help people implement. And so we give it all away for free. And, you know, we've got things in there from basic marketing to legal stuff to financial, basic financial setup for online business owners, because a lot of them, a lot of the people in the space that I happen to, to live on the internet have zero business background or experience. Um, and so they don't understand even the first things about basic bookkeeping. And so we have all kinds of things in there, but then we've got more advanced courses. I've got an email marketing course in there. We just keep growing it and, and making it better and better to help people build their online businesses. Um, give us your definition of marketing and an example, because I think people often confuse marketing and sales. Yeah, so marketing, <laughs> it's, it's hard to give a definition of marketing because to me, marketing is everything. Um, marketing is, you know, it, it starts with the market research, but it's also about creating the right product and understanding your audience at a level where you can create a product that fits them perfectly. But then there is the marketing communication. So advertising is part of it. Um, you know, all of those things are part of it, but so is delivering on your promise. So to me, some of the most powerful marketing is serving my buyers well and serving my customers well. So again, depending on the type of business you're running, if I just think about, for example, I had a um, I had an issue with an air conditioner recently, one of my air conditioners, and I had a company come out and the service I got from the guy and the way he treated me when he was out here doing the work was an important part of marketing because I will use that company again because the experience was so good. And the best definition, and I've got a quote in the book about it, um, is actually from um, well, there's two things. Number one, uh, there's a quote from, from Theodore Levitt, who basically said, and this is a key distinction, marketing is relentlessly about the customer. It's about what they need. It is about their interests. Selling is by nature selfish. It's about our needs to convert whatever product, whatever service we have into money. And so that to me is the big difference. And, and by the way, selfish is not bad. We got to make money. I mean, I sell a lot, but I focus first on marketing, which to me ultimately is about serving. And when I talked about the, the original idea for the book being about being a serve first entrepreneur, that to me is marketing. 
It's about putting my customers ahead of myself, putting their needs first and trusting that when I do that, things will take care of themselves. And it's happened over and over again. I found the more I give, the more I get. I don't give to get. I don't have an expectation, but I've just found that no matter what, if I give more, if I give more value, if I provide more to people for free, for, you know, in paid services, et cetera, I end up getting more in the end. And so that to me is what marketing is. You wrote about being funny. Isn't that kind of a hit or miss? You know, because I read a lot of your stuff and some of it's very funny. Yeah. Uh, should you avoid or embrace being funny? I mean, what, what if you're not naturally funny? It depends on, on your personality. So, and this is the thing I tell people, most people should not write emails like I write emails. But th it's not because I, I'm good at it. It's because my voice is my voice, right? I, I have a particular style of, it's kind of dad jokes and, and self-deprecating humor that, that quite honestly, I think it, it started out early on as a defense mechanism that I made fun of myself so that other people wouldn't. And I'm talking like way back to childhood, like I just did this. And so I've done that and I've continued it through, but also my humor is, you know, it, it's often like pretty bad puns and dad jokes and silly things like that, but that's who I am. It, if you're not funny, if that's not your personality, you shouldn't try to be funny. The point though is that, that the goal with email, especially like once people are just kind of on your list should be to build connection of some sort and touching some kind of emotion is helpful with that. It could be that you're inspiring. I have someone, I have a group coaching program. I have someone who's in it who is a, she is a, a um, yoga breath work and meditation teacher for pregnant women. As you can imagine, she has a very calm, very calming personality. That's her. So her emails, if they kind of had often the, the zany, frantic tone that mine does, it wouldn't make sense. So you've got to figure out what works for you and, and what your personality is. Um, if, if, if you're on this and you've never done this, I would highly suggest you go and, and you can search for uh, Jungian, like Carl Jung with a J, but the Jungian archetypes and how that affects brands, because there are different types of brands out there and, and an avatar for your brand. So like Harley is the classic rebel brand. Nike, I think, is a hero brand. And when you find that, that will ultimately affect a lot of, of the tone you use in emails. I choose to be funny because I am a rebel and a jester mixed in. So I like to say I'm kind of like, not that I'm nearly as cool as him, but I'm Han Solo from Star Wars. I'm kind of that guy who, you know, I, I'm kind of like always wisecracking and doing those things while rebelling against something. And so that's why my emails are written the way they are. And so it would be weird for me to not have that in my brand, but also to be clear, that's my personality. It's not just something I put on for the brand. That's, that's who Bobby is. And so it just makes sense. I read uh, short emails are the hardest to compose. How long does it take you to craft a one paragraph email? I don't know that if I've, I've ever written a one paragraph email. Uh, there, there's the famous quote, by I think it's Blaise Pascal. I would have written you a shorter letter, but I didn't have the time. Um, look, writing a short email is, is very hard. But I think the point is that, that, and someone asked this, when is an email too long? There's no such thing as an email that's too long, just too boring. Um, but also don't, don't write extra for the sake of writing extra. Figure out what the goal of any individual email is and do it. But I mean, I, I'm seriously saying for, for marketing purposes, I don't know that I've written 
a one paragraph email. Um, and my paragraphs are also very short. In most of my emails, I have one or two sentences per paragraph because I'm just trying to create blank space. Um, but any email I write, other than the heavy sales emails where I'm doing more conversion copywriting work, but anything other than those, 15 minutes is what it takes me to write a marketing email and, and I can you know write it and get it out. And there are plenty of typos. Mark, I'm sure you've, you caught some in some of those because we, we in the book, we included the emails as they were sent, typos yeah. and all, because I wanted people to know that. You know, like I use Grammarly, so hopefully it's catching most of the stuff, but it doesn't always. And so things will go out with typos and I don't worry too much about that. I always have to be, I'm a, a prolific F-bomber when yeah. I speak. And I remember you writing about that in the book as well. And so I have to be super careful because you never know who you're going to offend by saying some of those things. Yeah. And again, like I, I'm not an F-bomber. I, I rarely use that word. Um, but again, I mean, you know, I, badass is part of my branding at various points. And, you know, I like um, I, I literally have a playlist on my Apple, whatever it's Apple music, but it used to be iTunes called kick-ass playlist. I mean, that those like that's how I speak. And because of the type of business I run, where ultimately people are choosing not the legal template side, but the business coaching, they're deciding whether they want to learn from me and follow me, et cetera. I want them to know that part of me. So I just want people to understand, I will drop some four letter words. I don't do it often, but I do it sometimes. And so I tell people right up front so that if they will be offended by it, they can go ahead and unsubscribe from my email list. And I do that because I don't want to have to put on a mask all the time. I don't want to have to show up differently than me. Now, again, you, you temper some things. I mean, there's some things about my personality that I do temper in emails, my brand, et cetera. But to the maximum extent possible, I want to simply show up in my brand as me. That way, I will connect with the people who will naturally connect with me. And, you know, they will, they will be more likely to buy from me because they see that side of me. Um, it, there, there's a, and I, I don't know who this quote is from, but it's, you know, love me or hate me. There, there's no money in between. Uh, if you want to make money, you're going to have to be willing to repel the people who are not right for you, because then you will become a magnet to attract the people who you are right for. You mentioned uh, Neil Gorsuch in the book was also a mentor of yours. Mm -hmm. uh, what, if anything, did you learn and that helped you with your current career? You know, from him, I, I mean he was such an early proponent of me and it was more that he trusted me. Um, so I joined his firm or the firm that he was at. Um, I was a hmm, third year lawyer, I guess, when I joined that firm and I'll never forget. I mean, he sent me down to, I think it was Texas uh, for, it may, it may have been somewhere else by myself to interview various people at this client, a big fortune 500 company, because there was a case going on. And he trusted me to go do that by myself, which at that level, at the types of firms, like big firms handling these big litigation as a third year lawyer, normally you're like the fourth person carrying the third person's briefcase, who's carrying the second person's briefcase, who's, who's there to take notes for the first person. But he trusted me and empowered me. And that was a big part of, of why I am where I am, because what I choose to do now is is very different. And it took a lot of fortitude because I had to, you know, have hard conversations with with people who like, 
you know, like my parents, like, hey, uh, you know that Harvard Law degree I got? Yeah, I'm not going to practice law anymore. I'm going to go sell some legal templates online, you know, and, and you know, you can imagine that they were kind of perplexed by that. But also all of my lawyer friends are so confused. Like, so what are you? I'm like, what I was starting is like, I'm legal zoom for this particular group of entrepreneurs. Just think of it that way. And, and I had to have confidence in myself. And that was a big part of what I gained working with him more than anything else. Um, because again, you know, he has some very, see, he, he and I disagree on most everything, just to be clear, but he has the, the, the courage of his convictions. And I think I learned that from him as well. Uh, I also thought it was interesting that you were in a punk rock band. Yep. I'm wondering, what did you learn about communicating with an audience from being in a punk rock band? So I think what I, what I learned is, is it's about being yourself. Um, and that really is a big part of it. it, is that we were not trying to do, to, to, we were not at that point writing music for anyone else. We were saying, what, would, what do we want? And it's interesting because oftentimes that's the best solution. Now, again, you have to think about your audience now. I, I get that. But at the same time, oftentimes the best product ideas, the best marketing ideas come from someone solving a problem that they face. And so in other words, building a business for yourself to solve your own problems, or in our case, writing music we loved was part of what we did and then just showing up and, and you know, building a following, building a, a people who were your core fans. And that's a, a thing that I think really is, there's the famous, um, I forgot the name of the guy, but he was, um, um, I think the executive editor or something, the Wired Magazine, the, the thousand true fan concept. And, and you don't even need a thousand true fans, but the idea is that you build this really core group of fans who are your super fans in life, in business, in everything, and they will propel everything. And in my online business, that's true. I've, I've got these people who are out telling everybody about me. I don't even have to market that much anymore because they're doing it for me. And so that's the kind of lesson I learned. Uh, and I still refer to like, I just, when I launched the book, I referred to my launch team as, as basically a street team, which is a concept from, from bands where when you're going to a new city, you have a street team of people who are out there literally putting... <laughs> putting the flyers up on the street. Probably not anymore, but back in the day, that's what they would do. And so I still think in those terms. You had a failed business. We have a lot of entrepreneurs who listen to this show. Talk about that business and why it failed and what you learned from it. So, and it's, it's not even a failed business. It was a failed first iteration of my current business. And okay. what I did was um, in 2017 is when I started to make this transition into this online world. And I decided to create a course for online entrepreneurs about the legal stuff. I, in 2017, I, I sell my law firm, but I dumped somewhere around $50,000 into building this online business. And it was all heading to this big launch in 20, in November, where I was going to launch this course. And I was like, ah, oh, it's going to go great. I'm going to make millions. I didn't think I was going to make millions, but I thought it was going to go great. <laughs> I practiced my webinar and I, I recorded. I was like, man, that is dynamite. Again, I've been speaking on my feet for a long time. Hey, I, I know how to do this. And I went, I did the webinar. And right afterwards, I got off and then I went into my payment system and I was like expecting to see all these sales, zero sales. I had only one person buy from me in 2017. Um, she actually asked for a refund on day 29 of a 30 day, no questions asked, money back guarantee. And so it was a rough year. But the problem was that I was... I mean, there's a lot of mistakes I made. One, I wasn't focused on my audience. I thought I knew better. 
I said, I know what they need. So I'm going to create what I know they need, not what they tell me they need. Mistake number one. Um, hubris has been the downfall of, of many an entrepreneur, and it was part of mine there. Um, but also, I, I just, I wasn't willing to be me, was I think part of it as well. I, I was listening to all of this advice, and a lot of it didn't seem right to me. It seemed contrary to what I kind of inherently knew working uh, or learning from my dad growing up, working in his business, seeing the way he approached things. And instead, it was what I was trying to do was based upon the very quick hit, um, let's make money quickly type of approach, and it, it didn't work. And so my big shift in 2018 was to say, forget that stuff. I'm going to go back to being a giving person. Um, one of my core values is that that I am a radical giver in my business, and so that shift was huge. But literally throwing out the rule book or the kind of what I would say is the, the rule book being taught to online entrepreneurs and instead building something that made sense to me and was aligned with my values, my beliefs, the way I wanted to build a business was a big part of what made things work. Um, but I wouldn't trade that failure because if I hadn't failed, I wouldn't have kind of figured out what to make of a business afterwards. And talk a little bit more about this. You write about how the concept of giving change from making no money to making great money. Yeah. So the story behind that is it's it's this interesting thing. So at the end of 2017, I was in the dumps. I mean, I was I was in a very bad place. And December 31st of 2017 happened to be a Sunday. And we went to church and the pastor was talking about the power of giving and how giving changes you as a person. And so right there on the spot, I decided giving is going to be my word of the year for 2018. And when I started doing it, I, at first, I didn't know what to do. But when I really started, it was about in February, once I'd kind of figured some things out. And it was really interesting. This is a side, not even part of business. My family and friends, like a couple of weeks into it, like when I really focused on doing this, and I wasn't even telling them, I didn't tell them, they didn't know I was doing it. They said, what's different about you? They noticed that I was a different person. And part of it was I, I was coming out of the shell of being a lawyer where as a lawyer, you're often the person who says no. Your job is to find problems, to point out problems. And, and, and I was like going from that to someone who was actually supportive and giving and providing that. But what it did was people saw this and said, this guy is authentic. He's not giving because he wants something from me. He's just giving me stuff. And as a result, and by the way, I want to be clear, I was not giving like stuff that had like cost to me. It was giving of knowledge. It was giving of time. And yes, there's a cost to that, but it was not money out of my pocket. It was time. And doing that connected with me and built up brand equity in a way that no marketing communication, no advertising ever could have done for me. So then in it, first of all, I was giving, and, and in the online world, there was a, a lot of stuff happening where lawyers were kind of uh, pretty important in 2018. GDPR, the, the European Union's privacy regulation, was going into effect. Everybody was confused about it, so I created a training about it for free. Most lawyers were trying to use it as an opportunity to just charge people a bunch of money. They were they were charging people $200 for a checklist and just all these different things. I'm like, I'll just create a three-part training and give it away for free to my people. Well, I did that, and a, a woman who had a huge audience of my perfect clients heard that I was doing that, invited me to come onto her podcast, 
And overnight, my my email list, I think quadrupled or, or you know, grew by multiple thousands overnight because I'd done that only because I'd choose, chosen just to give value to people. And that then translated into my first profitable month online. Uh, in May of that year, I made something like $70,000. And it, it just kind of snowballed from there. And so I've just leaned into it. We talked about BombU that in some ways is the ultimate example of my approach to radical giving. Uh, but it also means I don't have to do stuff. I give when it feels right. And, and I think that is what people appreciate about me as well. What are your thoughts on direct marketing strategy that is measured and results focused? You talk a little bit about that in the book. Yeah. So look, there's nothing wrong with direct marketing. The problem is that some people think direct marketing is the only approach. And, and I hear a lot of people say, well, yeah, but we're not big brands. So we can't do the indirect brand awareness type of marketing that Coca-Cola or Pepsi or Apple could do. I just say that's BS, uh, candidly, because I've been doing it from the beginning. The problem with relying upon direct marketing and direct response marketing exclusively is that when you stop marketing, when you stop spending money, stop doing the, the, the activity, everything dries up. You're all of a sudden, you've got no more customers. Whereas if you do the work of building brand equity, building up goodwill, building up name recognition, which largely for us is about time early on, spending the time to be in places where our, our, our ideal customers are, provide value, et cetera. If you're willing to do that, what will happen is you'll just start making sales that it almost seems as if magic. And, and it drives my team nuts because my team, they're all trained in this like direct response online world where we measure and track everything. And we want to say, well, this ad dollar led to, to this many leads, which led to this many sales. 65% of our sales of our uh, signature legal product, we can't track to anything. We have no idea where it comes from, but I know where it comes from. It comes from brand awareness. It comes from the fact that people, other people then refer me out and say, oh, if you need legal templates, go buy them from Bobby. And so that work is the hard work and that's the sustainable work. That's the stuff that, that creates a business that can go on beyond you and isn't all about you and isn't all about putting in the time. So I think it's important to do both. And, and it's not that I'm against direct. We have to have the direct marketing, but also the indirect brand awareness, build goodwill type of marketing. Uh, can you build a brand or, or are you already a brand by the fact that people know you for something? I mean, how does marketing amplify what you're trying to do to prove people that they should buy you or, or the product that you're selling? Yeah. And so, so brand is such a weird concept because I think there's a famous quote that, that brand is what people say about you when you're not in the room. Um, and, and that's an interesting idea to think about, but ultimately I think you got to do both. Um, and you have to understand that, that to some extent your brand should come from, you know, you not creating it. It should just be there. I mean, I, I, I was the legal guy because I had legal expertise. I didn't have the I didn't have to brand that. And I didn't come up with some fancy name for it. Like I'm the legal, you know, your legal block. No, I just said, I'm a legal guy. But marketing matters because marketing is what allows other people to know about your brand. And if people don't know about your brand, I mean, it doesn't matter if you have one. So um, I would say both pieces matter, but ultimately 
it, it shouldn't be about creating something that's that's completely different from you. Whether you have a, a brand that is a personal brand, like in my case, my business is Bobby Clink, so I, I don't have another brand. But even if you have a something that's not a personal brand, ultimately it should align with you. And that way, you know, the, the, it just kind of there's this flow that naturally happens and, and aligns, and everything seems to work. But yeah, you got to do the marketing. There's no there's no question you have to do that that as well. You write about a life coach and the value you've had from a life coach. And I think some people listening are considering that. Explain why why did you do it and the value you've gotten and what was the selection process you went through to pick a life coach? A lot of people well, say they're life coaches. So it's kind of funny. Uh, a lot of lessons I learned from that. Now, number one, that life coach is the only reason I have the business I have today. So uh, what happened was in two, it was in 2016 at the time, I think it was, I was in my late thirties and I was kind of going through this. Bleh. I didn't know what was wrong, but I was, yeah, it was just kind of how I felt. And um, I wasn't exactly sure. And, and the way I picked her was actually that, that and this is a, an important thing. She didn't style herself as a life coach, but she was a life coach. She styled herself as a woman who helped professional men improve their relationships with their wives or significant others. And it was a very, it's a very important lesson in niche because she ultimately helped me with that for a while, but then helped me with personal relationships outside of my relationship with my wife, helped me with my relationship with my child and helped me with business. But ultimately she was a life coach, but she niched down to a very particular thing that spoke into something that I was like, yes, that is a particular problem I want to work on. I want to work on my relationship. I want to improve that. So that's how I, um, how I found the life coach. But ultimately what happened was, I don't know, six months in, after we dealt with a lot of the personal stuff, that's when we got to the business stuff. And she asked me a simple question. Do you like what you do for a living? And for the first time ever, I admitted I didn't. I didn't really enjoy being a, a being a lawyer. And at that point, I'm a law firm, so I couldn't blame it on, you know, I, I guess I could say I had a crappy boss, but that wouldn't really do much good because that was me. But I, I couldn't really say much other than no, I didn't. And then she asked the next question, which is, okay, what are we going to do about that? And I had no idea at the time, but through working with her, that's how I got this idea that I could build a business where I was offering tips, education, those types of things to entrepreneurs and it ultimately burgeoned into the business that I have now. So there's no question that it was a valuable thing. And it's also like, just made me happier in life. And, and there's all these little lessons, like the, the idea of giving without expectation. Uh, I could even go back to, she taught me that notion about, you know, in the context of my, my relationship with my wife, that I needed to do things, not so that my wife, like as a, well, I'm going to do this. So she'll do this for me, but no, just do stuff because I cared about her. And I brought that into my business of saying, I'm going to give because I want to serve my audience and doing so has worked out quite well. Your email to join your group seemed to me incredibly long. And, I, and I'm somebody, when I see something long, I am like, either I'll put it aside and say, I'll read it another day. And I, I've seen other successful marketers do the same. Uh, you know, you'll get letters from American Express or whoever it is, and they're like pages and I'm thinking, you know, some of the great minds are putting these things together. I must be missing something here. So how successful was that email? And what am I not getting here? So, I mean, look, my emails tend to be long, but part of that is because I am very loquacious. 
and verbose as a person. That, that's just naturally who I am. I go off on tangents. I, I have a lot of thoughts. I do a lot. And so because of that, if you think about it, if someone ultimately is going to respond best to very short, succinct, and to-the-point types of messages, they're probably never going to buy from me because when I'm selling, I'm not going to speak that way. And so I think the important thing here is to understand who you are and, and it's more about personalizing your voice for your person. But the reason why we have to think about, even if you're not someone who likes all the details, covering details is important because there are people in your audience who need details. And so partly it's about recognizing that there are different triggers that will work for different people. And so that's why, you know, I, traditionally people would say you have to do it. I think just as importantly, though, is you need to just bring your voice. And I can think of there's a woman I know, she, she is a coach for physicians, and she writes almost stream of consciousness. But also, if you think my emails are the stuff I write is long arc, I mean, hers is even longer, but her audience loves it. But I think the point is, there's no way she's going to do anything differently when she's talking, when she's doing these things. So she might as well condition people up front. And again, this is about the to attract the right people, you're going to have to repel the wrong people. And so that's the approach I take. And that's why my emails tend to be the way they are. A lot of them have side notes, have asides, because that's how I talk. And so that, that's what, how I approach my emails. Do you ever buy email lists for your own business or for your clients? And if so, how do you convert those people who don't really know you at all and you've bought those lists and make it interesting enough to embrace your message? No, I, I've never bought a list and I never would buy a list. And the reason why is that I view email marketing very much as permission-based. Um, we should only be in someone's inbox if they've invited us. And so because of that, I don't, I don't do it. Now, there are, there are people who do it. Um, the problem, just so that you understand, if you're buying lists, like, and again, I don't know what constant contacts rules are now, but um, I wouldn't be able to upload it. If, if I, unless I lied to ConvertKit, my email service provider, and said I collected it myself, they will not allow me to upload those. And the reason why is because you will have a ton of spam complaints and that hurt will hurt your deliverability going forward. And that means your emails will be more likely to not get delivered, to go to junk folders, to go to spam folders, even for the people who legitimately want your emails, if you have a lot of people complaining. And so that's part of the reason why most people won't do it. So if you were going to do that, I would suggest that um, you would need to use a different email service provider than your main one. And the goal of it would, would not be to sell to them directly, but as a way to reach out to try to get them to then join your list, your primary list, um, and, and to raise their hand and say, yes, they want to be on your list. Uh, what makes for a good subject heading? I mean, because a good subject heading will get somebody to open your email. So what, what makes for a good one? So curiosity hook is generally the best thing. Um, most of my subject lines will be either will either have a question mark or have an ellipses. And part of it is simply to get people to thinking there's something else here, but but it's about curiosity more than anything else. So one that that I got really great response to, it was how did that get me in trouble? And that was in all caps. And and to give people a little bit of background here, I have a reputation of getting myself into trouble. And so my list knows this. And so in their mind, they, they saw that subject line and would be like, 
what did he do now? <laughs> you know, right. and, and so they just needed to, they needed to close the loop. But that being said, if you build, if you do email right over the long term, subject lines become less and less important because people are scanning. And, and most of the people on my list, they're on my list and they now, they opened an email, the emails that I send no matter what. They don't really care what the subject line, because if you think about, think about how you approach email generally, right? When you kind of just like go through your email inbox, what do you do? You're not looking at the subject line. You're looking at who's, who it's from. That's the normal practice of normal people. And there's some people that most of us, and I'm not even talking about marketers, when we see an email from them, we're going to open it. And you want to build that type of relationship. Now you do that by, by having good subject lines, but also on by delivering them. And, and don't use misleading subject lines because that's one of the quickest ways to, to kind of upset people and end up having them unsubscribe and leave your list. So here's my last question. This comes up all the time. How often is too much when it comes out to volume of me emails? What you write is not your problem. I thought that was interesting too. So I guess here's my, like how much is too much when it comes to writing an email? One of the things I say is, especially when you're in an active sales period, stay calm and send another email. Um, it's one of those things you can get hard, but the more that I send, like the more emails I send in an active promotion period, the more I will get people to buy it. Now, I also give people the right, like I, I'll have a link on those to say, hey, if you don't want to hear more about this product right now, click here and I won't tell you more about it. So, so they can kind of opt out of just that one little piece. But the, the, this is something that people talk about a lot. And, and a lot of people think we're emailing folks too often. But if you're, if emailing people every week feels like too often to you, how are you ever going to sell to them? I mean, if, if they don't want to hear from you, guess what? It's going to be tough for you to sell to them through email. And we need to recognize that, look, these email lists, they are our, they're part of our marketing world. I mean, they're part of our business. They're an asset and they're only valuable if we can use them to sell. So my normal cadence, just to give people a sense, is I send in a normal week when I'm not really actively promoting anything, I'll send one or maybe two emails a week to my entire list. But when I'm in an active promotion period, you're going to hear from me every single day. You're going to hear from me multiple times when there's deadlines of any kind in a single day. And people rarely complain. People will actually say, I want to read your emails because they're fun, because they're enjoyable. And so that's the way I would treat it. Um, and, and you know, don't be afraid to email because you got to send emails. The only way you're going to not upset people is to not email people. And then what's the point of having an email list to start with? Bobby, thank you so much. I so enjoyed it. I loved your book. I hope people will be getting your book and I'll make sure I send the link uh, for them to be able to get your book when I send them out a copy of this video. And uh, again, thank you so much for joining us today. Everybody have a great rest of your week and look forward to seeing you next Friday. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.